Welcome to Women Who Sarcast. My guest today is a genderqueer ex-nun, RN, the author of children's books such as The Boys and Girls Body Book, Everything You Need to Know for Growing Up You, and the grown-up book, How to Survive and Maybe Even Love Nursing School. She's also a comedian that regularly performs at nursing conferences, hospice employee events, and the occasional livestock festival. Her most recent comedy CD, Not the Gym Teacher, is out, and she uses Lego for performance art. I could go on and on and on, but since she's taking a New York minute to hang out with me today, I'll let her tell the rest of her story. Please give a warm, sarcastic welcome to Kelly Dunham. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's so great to be here. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for being on the show. And I just want to, you know, take care of one thing, and that's the elephant in the room. And that was the fact that you were a nun back in the day. Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting to call it the elephant in the room. Uh, I haven't actually heard that before. But often people are like, well, that how did you get from being a nun to being like a lesbian that's not exactly what i am but let's <laughs> say for the, for the sake of uh the, the literary merit of it from uh nun to lesbian stand-up comic or lesbian nurse and i was like that's not even that's not even <laughs> right turn that's just like the n- inevitable like path i feel like you know uh <laughs> right. like me like of course that's what's gonna happen so to me it's you know it's a thing that makes perfect sense but i guess to folks who, I don't know, maybe didn't grow up around nuns or maybe who did, because I didn't grow up around nuns. But right. um, sometimes people who grew up around nuns have this kind of like one image of nuns, um, like the school teacher nuns that don't really seem to have, which, you know, some folks had great resp- experiences and some folks had a lot of corporal punishment experiences, but, uh, you know, may or may not seem very attractive as a life option for people. So, uh, but that's not the kind of nun I was. So, uh, you know. Do you remember anything about that first day of the convent? Um, I guess you could call it like a boot camp training <laughs> camp. Uh, well, the very first day, um, I remember I walked up as like actually a lovely building, red brick building in South Bronx. And um, Sister Angeles, who is our mistress, and that's her real name. I mean, for a while I was using Milagro, which was her given name. But then I was like, well, is that better than calling her by her actual name? Anyway, she's not listening <laughs> to this podcast I was like, okay, sisters, um, you know, you need to like, whenever you have an opportunity to choose something that's harder, you should always do so. Cause that's how like we mortify ourselves for Jesus and your own selfish, lazy nature will only make you evil. So that was a pretty relaxing thing to hear, you know, for <laughs> right. so like, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> we get it. <laughs> I'm the youngest of six and I was the only one out of the six that didn't have to go to Catholic school. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. And it was only through eighth grade. So those that went to Catholic school went to public school and high school. And you could always tell the difference between, you know, the kids that came in from the regular public school system and then the Catholic school system because they were just like wild, crazy. They're already smoking, (laughs) having sex, smoking pot, you know, and while, you know, us cute innocent public school kids uh, were a little shocked at that. But (laughs) so, yeah, I kind of didn't grow up around nuns. um, So I didn't have that pleasure. Do you have any words of wisdom from the nuns that you've kind of carried with you throughout the years? I don't think there's anything that makes sense in my life right now that they said. 
whether you took it as sarcasm or, or not. <laughs> well, one thing that they said is, you know, that there'll always be more to do that. Like, I mean, they they meant like you should just if when it's time to go pray, go pray, because there's always going to be something more to do in the soup kitchen or the shelter. And that is true, like that. There's always mm. I even say it to myself time sometimes now when it's like, no, it's time. OK, it's, you know. 6.30, time to stop working. There's always going to be something more to do. And that's actually not bad advice. I mean, they told me that I had too much self-esteem, which I just think is hilarious. <laughs> I occasionally tell myself, I think you need a little bit more self-esteem in this situation, this relationship or this job or this situation. Does that kind of coincide with like ego? Is that kind of what they... Yeah, that's what they meant. Is yeah. Ego. Um, which, you know, I think that the case can be made like, in a community, right? A very close knit community where you're really living on top of each other. There is something to be said for having a certain kind of humility, right? Mm -hmm. And humility can be helpful even when you're talking about, I mean, it's actually one of the, uh, one of like, we're kind of pivoting to use that of uh, cultural humility, right? Instead of cultural competency. Um, so humility can be helpful. And also I know for myself, when I don't get caught up in like being right, sometimes it's a lot easier to have an you know, it's a lot easier to have an argument with my girlfriend if we're actually arguing about the actual thing that we're arguing about instead of like which one of us is right. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. so it can be helpful. You know, it can be helpful. It's just like that kind of like pathological humility that almost it puts so much emphasis on the self on like trying to make the self go away um, that it actually ends up being like in a way more self-centered and like, you know, turns back in on itself. Right. So. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that's not that helpful. Um, and thinking you're a piece of shit, like we're supposed to meditate on like how we personally cause the suffering of Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot to and, uh, yeah, be that's a so much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's so much for like, you know, 8 a.m. on a Thursday morning. Or what <laughs> yeah. Really? I personally all killed God? Oh, damn. You know, <laughs> so that's a lot. But I don't think that helpful. But it can be helpful to just think of terms of like, you know, and, and, and also there is a way in which like that also is like not having to be right all the time is such a relief, you know. Mm -hmm. so, right. Uh, do you still you know, practice like, the do you still pray and still practice religious practices? Uh, I didn't for a long time, but it's always a struggle not to. Right. Because I actually feel that like I don't know that I believe in God necessarily, but I definitely feel that pull towards organized examination of what life is supposed to be about mm -hmm. um so for a long time i didn't uh have any kind of involvement although you know i love to you know my my girlfriend always says if you can't find kelly one day and you just don't know where she is she probably just joined the convent again you know i still have <laughs> right. you still have that pull towards I that, that pull. yeah i recently yeah. started uh going well you know going online to church again to mm -hmm. a church um, this super lefty church uh, in New York City, you know, and I'm going online. So I'm curious about if I want to continue to go. Mm -hmm. if it's, Without know, them actually seeing you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but they're lovely and like super queer friendly. And um, the pastor, she might be called minister in like one of her sermons, like you can see on the bookshelf, which is at her home, you know, because everything's from home. Uh, behind her bed, there's like books like Black Market Marxism, and hmm. you know, so it's an, a very intentional um, multiracial space, which I think is rare. You know, mm -hmm. um, is definitely rare. You know, only seven point five percent of American churches, American Christian churches, are considered 
uh, can be considered multiracial, but the definition they specifically had. Anyway, also uh, in their like uh, purpose statement, it's like, you can be an atheist and belong to our church. And I was like, that's what I need. I need a <laughs> right. church who don't believe in God. So, um, awesome. so that's kind of an interesting experiment like that I was kind of surprised, but also it was like such a relief because it's almost like I have to constantly push myself back from, from that because, you know, because the church is like a force for good in some ways and just also hugely a force for evil right so yeah which i guess is everything right yeah yeah there's always that duality right and especially in areas where like you know where the priest i mean catholic church is right one easy thing to talk about because it's so obvious it's like the priest is the absolute like it's absolute power so then you're always going to have you know when people talk about like, oh, well, you know, we need a different kind of priest and they won't be pedophiles. And it's like, well, no, they won't be pedophiles, maybe if you don't get a bunch of pedophiles. Right. But yeah, but the problem is that there's no accountability, you know, um, if they weren't being pedophiles, maybe they just they yeah, that would be great. But they also then without any accountability, like people, people, we don't we are not our best when we have no accountability. So that's like that's the heart of the problem, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, so. exactly. Well, I know that I joke around sometimes um, when I was dating that I always told my friends that I'm going to go jo- join a nunnery because the dating world is just so ridiculous. And I don't know, I kind of thought about that after hearing and reading about your experience. And it's like, well, maybe that wouldn't be such a good idea. <laughs> maybe I'll just stick with this dating app for another few months and see what happens. Yeah. Um, well, and also it's not like it's, um, you know, you still have to have the relationships just with eight, just with eight people and Jesus. You right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have any choice at all. Like the people you were with, you're just thrown together. So. Well, you've been a comedian for what, over a decade now. How did you get into the comedian world? So um, I always wanted to be a stand up comic like from the time I knew what a stand-up comic was. It's interesting. I'm watching Disney Plus just dropped all five seasons of The Muppet Show, the old Muppet Show. Awesome. From the yeah. So that's what I've been doing. <laughs> <laughs> My sister and I are texting each other. Oh, how, how many did you get to this one? Did you get to that one? Um, and there's a lot that's very interesting about that show, including the fact that they had to put disclaimers uh, on it on some different things. Yeah, how was it watching it as an adult than was as a kid? Yeah, it was. It's interesting because there are they do have like a couple of things like that, and of course, like you know, the whole Miss Piggy character is based on this weird fat phobia, but also it ends up being kind of like fat empowering because she is like totally the baddest bitch in there, mm-hmm. you know. So it's a little confusing the Piggy character, and you know, there's actually some really lovely things. Like there's a, it's in the later seasons, but it's like. Um, it's like Simon, somebody and their dancing bear. And it's about how he's in love with his dancing bear and, uh, or he's partnered with his dancing bear. And he goes, uh, who would think that a boy and bear could be so well accepted anywhere. It's just amazing how good people can be. And I'm like, how is that not about gay rights? Like that has <laughs> right. to be about gay right? Yeah. 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 And then they had like this, um, who was ever singing like, stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody mm-hmm. look what's going on. Whatever, whoever the guest star was, I should know, but I'm, I don't know, pop culture. Anyway, um, I can they see made the, the lead singer of the band, you know, the woman with the long blonde, you know, the Muppet yeah. with the long blonde hair, just kind of right. going exactly. back and forth. Well, they, made, they made that into an anti-hunting song. 
which I think is just amazing, right? So there was all like kind of the subversive stuff. And then also there was, there's a ton of, as everything in the 70s and 80s, a lot of jokes about um, having sex with somebody who maybe isn't 100% on board with having sex with that person. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some kind of racially inappropriate jokes, which on those episodes, they have a disclaimer. But compared to if you compare Mad TV, which was actually from later, from the mid 90s, and the Muppet Show, Muppet Show aged way better, way better. Yeah, yeah. But one, one of the things about it is as I'm watching, I'm like, oh, this has like Fozzie Bear so much informed my comic sensibility, right? Because he dies all the time on stage. Right. Um, and yet he is still so happy and he still loves performing so much. So definitely there are moments when I like, you know, channel my inner Fozzie Bear. <laughs> so I definitely wanted to be a comic since I knew that was a thing. I remember my dad let us stay up t- late to watch, late, nine o'clock, to watch uh, Steve Martin's first special that was tef- televised. Mm. You know, he's very like surreal and goofy as a stand-up. And it actually, there's a, you know, it's not meant for kids at all, but there's part of it that's just funny to kids, you know, is his arrow through the head and like his song that that ends, you know, there's some kind of chorus that's like criticize things you don't know about, which is, you know, that's like a very sophisticated (laughs) adult thing. So I wanted to be a stand-up comic since I knew it was a thing to be, um, but I didn't really have the you know, because to be a stand-up comic, you have to be very bad at it for a very long time in front of other people. So I didn't really have the um, self-confidence until I was in my 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had tried a couple times, but then like when I hit my 30s, I was like, well, when am I planning on doing this? When is this going to happen when I'm 90? <laughs> you know? yeah. um, so what about comedy do you wish was different? Oh, I mean, I've given up on kind of mainstream comedy in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, I have to say, in some ways, it's surprised me how much how much better it's gotten as far as wanting more diverse voices. Like, there's no way that I can do, like, when I first started out, like, bookers would be like, oh, well, one perfect example is there's a booker in Philadelphia. Um, she put me on the bill with, you know, it was at a fucking spaghetti, it was spaghetti warehouse. You know what I mean? Like it was not a fan. And uh, she put me on the bill with this white guy who used the N word. And uh, then afterwards, the people that I brought a very mixed mm-hmm. ra- racially mixed group um, got into a fight with the people who he brought to see him uh, in the parking lot. Wow. Um, and then I was saying like, you can't put me on with him. And she was like, um, well, you're not at a point, your career is not developed enough where you can like make, make those kind of demands. And I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. then I guess I'm just not performing for you anymore because I'm pretty sure my career is developed enough to like not want my fans, you know, as many fans as I had, you know, in my first four months of performing uh, to, you know, be in a position where they're being hate crimed against. Right. At my- yeah, exactly. That's not a- yeah. So, Did you um, know beforehand or do you just show up and you know? who you yeah i mean that was also the you know the internet was also very now i always check yeah. when i put on the bill with somebody yeah uh, also i do not think i don't know i mean because mainstream comedy clubs it's still like 1950 i mean yeah you know tons of people still letting like there's been no you know the fact that people can show up and louis ck you know is like a surprise guest um mm-hmm. is you know that's just like happens in new york all the time so you know, so it's it getting so much better in so many ways. Like, um, I don't know if you saw, like, Tiffany Haddish has uh, two seasons now of something called 
they ready, which is like just it's really just Tiffany Haddish being a decent human and just being like, these are comics I came up with. Everyone should see them. And really a huge amount of diversity, including like a trans woman. Mm-hmm. And Netflix is doing so much in terms of like last January, not this past January, January before they dropped like 30 specials on, you know, January 1st, they were doing like really where having a little bit of something to say that isn't about being uh, a white cis straight man is actually, there's a little bit of flavor of the month to it right now. So, I mean, it makes me worry that like, you know. Sometimes when I'm like, oh, am I going to go do this other show? Uh, you know, I don't even know if there's going to be. It's like, oh, I have to do every show because we're flavor of the month. We, um, <laughs> yeah. Gender queer people are flavor. Like, I got to get my month while while we have it. So, but hopefully it's be- becoming more open to all stories. But yeah, it seems like Netflix is really expanding their their comedy shows. Even if they, I've seen like where they have the little short ones with the different with pe- people I've never seen, you know, before. Right, right, yeah. So. Yeah, that there's so because there's tons of comics who are fantastic that are not everyday names like most comics. Yeah. Um who make a living, you wouldn't have heard of, you know. So. Is there any topic that you won't touch at all or are you pretty open about what you do in your stand up? I try not I don't tell other people's stories, right? So, um if I'm going to talk about race, I'm going to talk about my experience with realizing like my internalized, not internalized, but like how I am still white supremacist in some ways or like white savior or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the story of discovering that, which is also often very embarrassing, but then kind of funny because that's like, you know, that's the only part of that that is for me to talk about. I mean, I don't mind talking up sometimes a little bit about grossly racist uh, uh, other white people as well but um i feel like it's a little bit more like yeah okay that's uh you know then it, it gives the impression that's like oh well i'm not a racist because you know no we all grew up in white supremacy we're all racist yeah. we're all working on it you know yeah so that's not my favorite topic i mean i think anything can be joked about if it's like punching up and you know not punching down mm. um and you know like jokes about sexual assault right um, the problem with so many, you know, like where people, got, where people are like, oh, well, you just can't joke about sexual assault. Well, yeah, you can. What you can't do is, for example, I used to perform with somebody at this open mic, which is what made me feel like comedy was not, you know, a great idea, um, where this was his joke. He would say, um, and the other guys would goad him into telling this joke, um, air quotes joke. Uh, he would say, um, so I took my girlfriend parking the other day. First of all, how old are you that you took your girlfriend parking? But um, <laughs> And who even uses that term anymore? <laughs> yeah, happy days or something. Um, <laughs> I took my girlfriend parking and she said, I'm not that kind of girl. So I took out my knife and said, yes, you are. Like mm. that was the joke, right? But that's not even like, I mean, first of all, not funny, but also it's just literally like, I guess, sexual assault for shock value. I mean, I'm not even sure what exactly the punchline is there. Well, and it seems like a lot of comedians are for the shock value, whether it's, you know, saying the F word every other word or doing something like that guy did. It just seems like that's it's like that's their shtick. That's all they have. It's just they want to shock their audience and hoping that they'll laugh. They don't have the the talent to create jokes that are actually jokes that people can relate to (laughs) and laugh at. Right. So do you have like a one-liner that is like your signature one line i don't really do one-liners i mean i guess if i have kind of lines that people tend to repeat uh i think it's like um you know comedy uh 
therapy. It's such a fine line. That's something I say a lot on stage. Mm-hmm. Oh, and like telling something horrible and being like, wait, that's not the funny part, you know. And then <laughs> right. like, but you have you have certain parts of your routine, I guess, if you want to call it that, that always gets the reaction or the laugh or the, you know, the the audience is affected by what you say, whether that's telling a story or some some phrase that you say over and over again. Yeah, I mean, um. And you yeah, probably so, test out new stuff as well to kind of see. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing, right? You're always developing, you know, like I released not the gym teacher, just about like just a little bit over a year ago. And in this past year, I've been trying to develop a new hour of material. I mean, it's a little hard because developing material online is um, mm. definitely a different beast than uh, developing material in person, but mm-hmm. not possible, but. Uh, yeah, so my goal is to develop a new hour every year. Some years I don't get there, but that's my goal. Great. So tell me about the house concerts for resistance. Yeah, it was so fun. Um, COVID kind of did those in, but we got a good, I got a good two tours out of it. So basically when I was touring the CD and also when I was doing um, some build up like a, not practice, but kind of, you know, I needed some full length shows uh, to just like work on the rhythm and stuff. The ones before I recorded the CD and the album, I did mostly places that were within a day's travel of New York City. So I did like two in Boston and I did one in Hampshire and Allentown, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia and some different places in New Jersey. Basically, I just put on Facebook hey, do you want to um, host a Hans concert? All you got to do is invite your friends. Um, I'll be funny. If you want to provide <laughs> them food, that's awesome. You can, but otherwise you don't need to. And you can pass the hat or do it ticketed and we'll give the money to whatever progressive cause you care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really nice. And some places really like, you know, the, the causes ended up being, you know, places that's a little harder to raise money for, like um, abortion funds are specifically mm-hmm. hard. And uh also, Boston, one of the shows was for, they were trying to get a piece of legislation passed that uh, undocumented folks would be able to get a driver's license, which is, of course, it's so so common sense in terms of like public safety. And I mean, even if you don't care about undocumented people, it's good for everyone right. who's driving to have a license. Exactly. <laughs> they have gone, undergone some kind of assessment. So we collected for that, which did get passed shortly after that. Not, I'm sure, because of just because of our house concert. but uh, <laughs> I'm sure you know, it helped really, a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's really nice. And it's like a nice little party for people. Not everybody loves to perform in a house. Uh, I was working with my coach slash director, Gaston Almonte, who's, um, I mean, it's kind of amazing. He's like a straight cis guy, but he's, he and I have a very, very similar, he's quite, he's very, very talented. And he hasn't been uh, doing it as long as I have. He's just so talented and so diligent. Um, I asked him if he would coach me. And uh, we have a very similar pattern of performing, like a very similar style. And um, he, so he had, so everything, I, I would record everything and then he would listen to it afterwards. And he was like, oh my God, like there was a point in which I was performing and they had me performing right next to a stairway and it was a household with kids. Oh no. And uh, he's like, at first, like, when you first started performing, I heard a baby crying and I was like, oh, that's going to be her problem. This, this, uh, <laughs> oh. And then like I heard all the kids going up and down the stairs constantly. I was like, where the hell is she performing? A daycare? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so a lot of people <laughs> love it, but I like I would rather perform with like some kids there, you know, and everyone's happy. Right. And perform in a club where, you know, people maybe want to be there, maybe want to hear comedy, maybe they don't. You know, if you're coming to somebody's house on a Tuesday night at seven, you're there because you want to be there. Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly. It's not it's like an accident. So that was so fun. I felt so good about that. Um, yeah. yeah. And then uh, after the um, the album released, I went uh, to the Midwest and I did. I had a college show at Hiram College, one of my favorite places to perform, actually. They had me do, I do a presentation called Laughter at the End of Life. And they had me do that on a Saturday night. Like they are, they're in some intense Midwest <laughs> really appreciate it. it was like packed i was like all right okay um <laughs> uh and then i did a workshop there too so i was like in cleveland columbus i think hmm. i did Dayton, grand rapids michigan wow that's great and then i did pittsburgh on my way back and in, in pittsburgh i performed it with a guy i went to bible college with he is head pastor or head minister or whatever at a big presbyterian church in pittsburgh mm-hmm. and he's like I'll, I'll, you can put on a comedy show in my church. And I was like, really? He's <laughs> uh, like, yeah, uh, yeah sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he built it as a queer comedy show. And I don't know, he had all his, like the older members of his congregation came out on a Saturday night. We did it, you know, not in the actual sanctuary, but like in the reception hall. And it was great. Mm-hmm. It was like one of the best shows. There was like 350 people there. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. that was really, yeah. What What's the cause that you're very passionate about that either you'd love to work with or that you have already? Well, healthcare. I think people should have healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, universal healthcare, or we're calling it universal Medicare. I don't think it's ideal, but my, is a good way to sell it. So that's something I really care a lot about. Speaking of healthcare, you were sick with COVID last March, and that was when they didn't really know much about it. So... You know, on top of the whole, you know, I have COVID and not really knowing what's going to happen. You know, the medical field doesn't really know what's going on with it. How was that experience for you? Well, definitely they did. The head of pulmonology at the large, very, you know, good hospital that I was at in New York City. um, He was like, we don't know what we're fucking doing. Because I also tested negative once when I was in the hospital, hmm. which now we know that like, especially with rapid tests, like 30% of all those are false negatives. Right. But it was confusing. I also had like a, a little bit of a not as typical case because I responded really well to steroids. Hmm. And uh, at that point, they weren't even sure if you're supposed to give steroids to people with COVID. So, I mean, the scene in the emergency room, it was just at the very beginning. It wasn't even, at you know, there was moments in New York City where there was a siren like every eight minutes. Mm. It was really like, I don't ever have to live through that again. Like that was, that was really, you just felt like constantly sad and worried for everyone, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Because yeah. even if it wasn't somebody you love, it was somebody who someone loved, you know? My experience was before that. I have to say the providers, because you were alone, I don't know if this is everyone's experience, but because you're alone, like you're kind of just in there with the providers without any kind of mitigating your family's not there. Mm-hmm. And so it felt very, it felt very collegial. Also, there is something for me as a, you know, I'm a nurse. So as a nurse, like to hear other providers, like they're to hear that humility of like, 
yeah, we're not sure anymore. Like we were having this conversation about whether I need to be intubated. Mm-hmm. And I was voting against being intubated, um, which turns out was exactly the right, you know, two months later, they were like, no, we should always wait as long as we can to intubate. But then they were just like, well, no, you're going to tire out. You're, you know, you need to be intubated. And I was, and I was voting against that. Yeah. In that conversation, the doctor who was talking about it with me was citing not like research, not academic articles, not like, you know, some, he was saying like, well, I talked to my friend from Seattle. I mean, there was nothing wrong with that. That was, he was doing the best he could. That was exactly the right thing to be Uh referencing. But like, like I was like, oh, we are in the early days, the early, early, early days, you know. And at the moment you probably didn't think it would be still happening, right? I mean, as you go through, not actually in the moment, but as you came out of it, I mean, who thought that we would still be in it a year later? Yeah, I mean, I definitely did not. I mean, I don't know if I really thought all the way through about what would happen in a pandemic. But I guess the whole thing of like, you know, a third of America not even believing in COVID and then refusing to wear masks because, you know, it takes away their because it's a huge. uh, It's a human's right thing. Yeah. Yeah. And what would you say to people? I mean, since you've experienced COVID, what would you say to people that don't want to wear a mask or think it's a hoax or think it's not anything worse than a flu. Yeah. I don't know. Cause I definitely have interacted with people like that online a lot. Um, and it doesn't really matter what you say. Um, I don't, I, I, I actually think about this a lot about the level of propaganda and how, you know, you always think, well, propaganda is dangerous. You know, when you think about the propaganda of like world war two, like the propaganda of the Nazis, but you really just see like, even where it's not about, intensely evil stuff although i think you can make a case that covid denialism is evil mm-hmm. that it's just like i don't have any idea how to work with it and to be honest i have nurse friends who work you know like a nurse who works in montana and she says like she has had people dying in their last breath they will be like this was a government conspiracy mm-hmm. this i i don't have covid i have i was poisoned by the government i mean yeah what do you do with that how do you change their minds you just you can't I don't, yeah. there's just don't no logical way to do it, in my opinion. It's like, well, okay. and also that, that science is not the, like, science is like more the enemy now than the friend, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I hope somebody smarter than me and like more versed in what it works. I've actually, I was listening to a podcast about how people get sucked in by Fox News or, you know, the YouTube equivalent. Um, mm hmm. But it doesn't actually have a lot of information about how to get folks out of that once they're once that's, you know, because then they don't trust any other source except for that source. Right. Right. Yeah. The Internet has definitely contributed to that and how quickly things spread. uh, Misinformation spreads. Yeah, for sure. So in my stocking of you to prepare for this chat, I found some pretty awesome videos on YouTube, which is not propaganda, by the way. Uh, that you created, and they're like the stop motion with the Lego minifigs and the the bricks. And do you have a name for this type of? I mean, people call it brick film. Okay, but it's not a perfect brick film the way I do it because some of them are very like just stop motion, and of course they're very you know I just taught myself stop motion from YouTube videos over the summer. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah. like I took a class or anything so uh you know in that way it's kind of I mean intentionally I don't know amateurish but I, I'm actually really it's it, what it is is very lo-fi because actually the way I do it 
is I don't even use, you can, there are apps you can use, stop motion apps, but I actually take the individual pictures, upload them into Keynote, which is the, um, the native presentation software on a Mac. And then play the stand-up comedy on another source and then uh, manually key through the slides wow. while I'm using the record function. And that's why the timing is so perfect, too, because I'm not having to match it up with like an audio, you know, like a looking at an audio. I'm actually hearing the audio. So I think it makes the timing really perfect, but it is extremely time consuming. I was going to say, how many hours does it take you to do <laughs> one so scene? Long. Oh my God, it takes so long, but it is really funny. And I feel like it's also very hard to be mad or like upset when you're working on it. Cause it just takes just the right amount of concentration. So, right. um, it's a little repetitive and stuff. So, yeah. and it's super fun feeling like, Oh, how can I get, get this to express? Cause it's not just, I'm not just using the Lego. I'm also doing like cartoon figures and my mm -hmm. own drawings and words and stuff like that. So yeah. I'm really happy with it. And people have been saying like, Oh my God, I can't believe you made like it's so much funnier. Like, right? <laughs> yeah, the visual funny. definitely adds to it for sure. Yeah. And there's one particular video that I watched. It's um, so I want to kind of do like a Siskel and Ebert at the movies review of uh, the movie called Body Fluids on the B Train. <laughs> <laughs> so, like you said, you match up the audio as the Lego is your visual, your interpretation, and. There's a word that you use in this movie quite often, and I will probably never look at the word probably the same again. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. So you definitely need to go look at this video. And you reference Portland. I lived in Portland for four years and then Seattle for a few years when I went to art school. And you kind of compare the Portland metro to the New York City metro, which is like no <laughs> comparison whatsoever. I just want to add that in there. But that you can't cry on a Portland train or bus. Or Can you explain why? Oh, yeah. You can't cry on any public transportation in on Portland because... Uh, the first, you know, the first tear coming out of your eye, you know, somebody hands you, you know, somebody's concerned, like they hand you a Kleenex or a vegan cookie or sliding scale, <laughs> you know, coupon for sliding scale energy work, like, you know, and in New York, you know, you would have to like, in order to get that amount of attention, you would have to be carrying like a severed head, probably. <laughs> right. your own severed head. <laughs> and I people, have to yeah, say, you interpret that very well using the Lego, I have to say. <laughs> Thank you. I was I was proud of that. Yeah. <laughs> but my question is, have you ever been to Seattle? Because uh, that's even worse. I have been. Yeah, I performed at Seattle Pride once many years ago. And my brother lives in Seattle. Um, you know, he lives like in the suburbs. He used to work for Microsoft, mm -hmm. which seemed like its own special hell. I it's have more to say like that. Bellevue, right? Um, Across the little bridge that yeah, it was across the bridge. Yeah. yeah. But I, have, you know, been in Portland or in Seattle for the for pride and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seemed like a bougie. I mean, I guess Portland has changed quite a bit in the last 13 years from what I've heard, but um, that it's gotten even bougier. But Seattle seems like a bougier form of Portland. So therefore, even more annoying, perhaps. Yes. Well, they're very emo there, at least when I was there. That may have changed. Um, but the lack of sun. Um, yeah. And just the cloud coverage feeling like it's, you know, heavily on your head. Um, but yeah, I think that was a great video. And have you ever watched Lego Masters? Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. What was your thought about that? Did you want to be on the show? I totally want to be on the show. I don't have that kind of building skill. Um, and they only want people to apply in teams. 
but I feel like I'd still be a great person to be on Lego Master because I would be fun to watch. So well, maybe you could host it. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> yeah, I think I would be funnier than Will Arnett. Will Arnett yeah. is so just, he's fucking just calling it in. You know, he is not, <laughs> I'm sure he's not getting paid that much. He's like, I'm just like, because also the Lego are, are the real star. Like the real, real star isn't even the people who are building. It's the actual creations, yeah, you know? Exactly. So everyone's being upstaged by the Lego creations a little bit. Yeah. So. And some of those are pretty amazing especially when they do oh, the yeah. animated ones or the yeah, yeah robotic ones yeah those are people who actually do it for a living you know like they're actually really really um i mean i think i'm pretty creative with some of the stuff i do with lego but it's not you know it's not because of my intense great building skills necessarily. yeah <laughs> i i pretty proud of the, like the whitewater rafting like the you know the milieu of the whitewater rafting that i made it look kind of like whitewater rafting water but <laughs> Well, something to aspire to, I guess, would be Lego Masters. How did you come up with the using the stop motion and the Lego to kind of interpret your stand-up? I have always been like an AFAL, an adult fan of Lego. More so as I had a professional job and could afford to be an AFAL. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, not a, it's not the cheapest ho ho hobby in the world. No. Um, although it's fantastic because once you spend the money, then you just have it. So I had been wanting to do stop motion for, I mean, ages. Eddie Izzard has, who's one of my favorite comedians. Eddie is a British comic, but had a kid in America, like probably 12, 13 year old, who had done a bunch of uh, stop motion Lego stuff based on Eddie Izzard's, like, do you have a flag? That story and Darth Vader in the Star Wars um, cafeteria, which is hilarious. Mm -hmm. And they were so good and added so much to the comedy, especially the kind of comedy that's like, a little bit surreal um, and kind of like making a, like really like kind of a strange story. And I was so impressed with that. And I've been looking around. I was like, why aren't more comics doing this? And then I started doing it and I was like, oh, because it's intensely. <laughs> I'm assuming that's why people aren't doing it. Nobody has a patience for it. But yeah. then COVID, you know, I'm like, oh, well, I guess this is the moment where I'm doing stop motion animation. So. Right. And the better I get at it, the quicker it is. Like I start, you know, I stop making the same, you know, like I'm making new mistakes now that I didn't make when I first started. Well, the the way that you interpreted you peeing in the bent in the chair with the, <laughs> the yellow bricks kind of spreading. <laughs> and did you see one thing? I'm really. I mean, this is so fun to be like so proud of this. But I, I you know, I'm like a little kid. <laughs> it took forever. But you see, like the little dinosaur come up and then come back down. Yes. Yeah. So the little dinosaur. I'm trying to make him appear. It's a. It's a baby uh, velociraptor and i'm trying to make the baby velociraptor appear in every stop motion mm -hmm. um even though it makes no sense like they're like in the whitewater rafting one there's a baby like well, there's not wasn't a velociraptor there but it's just like <laughs> he just comes in and then comes out do you have like a favorite minifig well i like the one you know i uh it's am amazing i feel like if i were like look different if i didn't look a little bit like a 12 year old and dress like a <laughs> old boy it would be a little harder to get a minifig that looked like me it was actually pretty easy and um the one that i use which is like the little i don't know i think he came from the boy scout kid or something like that like he is wearing a striped shirt and then he wears a blue like a royal blue um hoodie over it mm -hmm. i actually got that same outfit so that me so i can take a picture of me wearing that outfit and like doing something that the minifig is doing nice so i'm just fascinated by reading about your life and what you've done and there's so much that I want to ask and talk to you about 
as far as what you've experienced and accomplished, because it's just amazing what you have gone through and what you, how you've come out the other side on a lot of things. Do you ever look back and think, what the fuck was that? Was that really me? Was that really my life? Do you ever look back and just kind of be amazed at yourself? I mean, sometimes it feels like it was a different person. Um, Mostly because like, in terms of just like a specific, like I have very specific memories of even like, I actually have a lot of, like I have memories from when I was three, like really clear memories from from when I was like three. I I actually remember, and I know this is what you're talking about, but this is going somewhere. I remember the day I learned how to get out of my crib, Hmm. you know, but sometimes with things that happened you know, and I took, I take a lot of notes and, uh, you know, also since social media is actually very like live journal was tremendously helpful when I was writing, uh, my book freak of nurture, because, you know, I could just check the live journal for any given day and figure out what was what had gone on. I mean, definitely there are moments where I feel like, what the hell was that all about? You know, especially when my second partner died of cancer, like my first partner, I was like, all right, well, you know, things happen to people. It's painful. Uh, but when my second partner died of cancer, mm-hmm. that seemed like, all right, what was that about? You know, mm-hmm. remind me of like my uh, older nephew was like 16 or 17 laying almost completely asleep on, or almost asleep on the couch, like completely relaxed. And his two year old brother came up and just punched him on the side of the head. And he was like, <laughs> what was that about? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. like, that's what the second partner felt like. It just felt like, you know, in addition to being so sad for her, it also just felt like, what was that about? What was it? You know, because the first time you can be like, well, I can learn this or I can learn that. But the second time just seems like, well, this is like fucking waste, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I also like have kind of a deep biological optimism that like that's, you know, it's not something I can take credit for. Um, and sometimes it's actually not that. I mean, mostly it's helpful, but it's not. Deep biological optimism is great for mental health, but really bad for decision making because everything's a good memory, you know. But, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, well, how uh, do you so- get out of bed in the morning and still give back to your community after the experiences that you've had with grief and loss? Um, yeah, because there's no other choice. You know what I mean? Like, I remember one time, this is such a great New York City uh, grief group um, interaction. Um, somebody in my group, my first group group was talking about like, I just want to like, I don't even care anymore. I just want to lay down in the gutter and die. Um, and the person sitting across from her was just like, she was just thinking really hard. And she was like, yeah, but this is New York city. If you lay down in the gutter and die, somebody's going to come poke you with a stick. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I always said in the beginning of you know, that like, it was so, I was very glad that uh, I was not a person who had a trust fund. I mean, you know, uh, because (laughs) I had to get up and go to work every day. You know, I had to make money. I had to, you know, I didn't want to be homeless. So I had to have, so um, that in that way was just like, okay, well, I don't have any choice. And luckily I was not a person, like I had a lot of social support. So, you know, people helped me financially. So I wasn't like totally like, oh, you know, like, where's my next, you know, like the kind of desperation that makes it possible almost to heal. But definitely structure was, has been really helpful for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Having, you know, and even having a lot of different interesting things in my life, right? Like I have my day job and then I have comedy and doing workshops and all that, like that, that definitely helps. Yeah. And also just like I had, I feel so lucky in that, 
you know, many times I almost feel like there are ways in which like being a queer person has been super helpful because like we don't like we have this concept of our friends are our family. And so as a, like a widow, like I, there was always people around me, like even like my second partner passed away, Cheryl, like her friends became my friends, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So there was like just kind of this circle of support. Like I, you know, I of course felt intensely lonely at times, but it was just specifically missing Cheryl. It was not feeling like I was all alone, but I feel like uh, lots of widows I know who are more like kind of in regular, like mainstream heterosexual society like especially when all their friends were married they were not just a widow but then they were also a single person right Right. so then they had the awkwardness of like how do we socialize when we go play bridge or i don't know what straight people do but (laughs) you know that kind of thing and it's really um it's a whole different and also like people forget after a while i mean um right yeah. Uh, so I think that there are some advantages in ha- in living in a culture of community that that values community. You know, maybe not always the way we should, but certainly that is at least our we have that model of of community support. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's amazing when we're in situations, whether it's grief or loss or whatever, that we kind of go to that almost survival mode of well what else am I going to do I need to get up like you said I need to go to work I need to continue and and almost having that helps you through the healing process Um, I remember when my dad passed away I lived in Seattle and I worked at Trader Joe's and I was working you know in the produce section stocking bags of potatoes one morning and I just like broke down for no apparent reason other than, you know, I just lost my father. But it's like in that moment, it's like you could be doing something so mundane as stocking a shelf with bags of potatoes, and then your body is just like, nope, can't do it anymore. I'm just going to break down without even warning you, and this is what's going to happen. So, you know, those moments of almost clarity for me, it's like, okay, I'm grieving, and, you know, a bag of potatoes had to be the... The point the where it was like my body's gonna gonna do it regardless. So yeah. So what projects do you have coming up? You got anything in the hopper? Yeah, um, I'm always working on more um, stop motion animation. So uh, good. Uh, That's exciting. That on YouTube, I have three new workshops I'm doing for folks. I mean, they're kind of targeted towards, I mean, I don't know if they're targeted toward young people. They're ta- they're created specifically for these moments. Three new workshops. One is called Grief, You're Not Doing It Wrong. Mm-hmm. It's about basically understanding, like <laughs> unlearning myths about grief and doing uh, some like art in response to grief hmm. and art with a small a. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's you know designed to be virtual. And I have another one called the fine art of asking for help. Interesting. Um, about asking for help. And I'm doing both of those uh, at the five college gender and sexuality conference the beginning of March, which is free and open to everyone, I believe. Awesome. And I'm doing those uh, should be, I've got uh, three or four colleges that I'm negotiating with now to do those for their students. And I also looks like I'm going to be doing a couple of virtual fringe festivals and uh, with 
a show called Second Helping, which is about a New Yorker from formerly from a large stoic Germanic farm family kind of comes face to face with like the moments when you really need help and not not asking for help or not needing help is your religion. What do you do? You know, right. Yeah. Um, Funny version of that, though. It's hilarious. So uh, that's going to be in a couple of French festivals. And I'm also doing that as part of a festival, an online festival that's taking place the end of March. It's great to hear that you have so many projects going online. I know that a lot of uh, comedians that I've talked to are struggling because, and I know these are workshops and not necessarily stand-up stuff, but a lot of people that were in the entertainment and the event in the event industry are definitely struggling. So it's great to see that you're doing a lot of projects that you're passionate about. Yeah, I feel like I didn't like jump into it. Like I definitely I have done like I I used VR to do shows like in 2017 and 2018, mm-hmm. which is own, like beautiful and also its own special hell. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I was familiar. Um, and so I did some shows, especially storytelling shows, not a ton of stand up. But so I didn't jump in like some people were doing like five shows a night. And I didn't jump in in that way, partly because I was like, I don't exactly like that. I don't see the benefit because it's really hard to work out new material. And that would be the only reason to do that many shows a night. Mm-hmm. But I've like, you know, kind of like as things are offered to me and as I've created stuff, like I do my own queer memoir series where we have three virtual shows coming up. Uh, so I didn't jump in with both feet. So I think I'm also not burnt out on it right. the way folks have been doing five shows. I've been uh, kind of particular about what I was willing to do. Mm-hmm. So that's That's been nice, too. And, you know, it's been nice to get to perform for an audience that's everywhere and perform with people from all over. So. Right, and you, you know, probably reach benefits. people that you wouldn't have normally. Yeah. Well, you can find Kelly Dunham at kellydunham.com on social media, and definitely check her out on YouTube for those movies. You're missing out if you don't check them out. Thank you so much for being on the show, Kelly. Oh, yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, this is a really fun conversation. I appreciate being a part of the podcast. Thank you for listening to Women Who Sarcast, an independent podcast. We welcome and encourage your snarky comments. Contact us at womenwhosarcast at yahoo.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at womenwhosarcast. Support us on Patreon and become part of our sarcastic community. Visit www.patreon.com backslash womenwhosarcast. Show music provided by Mike Imbasciani.